If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'd love to bring you a Bible. We are starting a new sermon series in the book of 2 Corinthians. And so we're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. 2 Corinthians. From uh, time to time, if your life is anything like mine, whether you're talking with neighbors or at work or family, from time to time people ask me, as I assume they ask you, why are you a Christian? And I think that there are lots of ways that you can answer that question. Lots of true ways to make sense of why I'm a Christian. But some days I just want to say, I'm a Christian because Christianity is just exceedingly practical. I mean, Christianity makes sense to life when, when you're on the up and up. Those seasons when you get a promotion. Those seasons when the family is healthy and happy. Christianity makes sense in those seasons. But Christianity also makes sense when things are bad, when things are hard. Those seasons in which you wake up discouraged and you go to bed discouraged. Most religions kind of have a framework for the good times, but they have a hard time speaking into the bad times. They say things like, ah, just pull yourself up, just get through this. It could be worse. You just got to have the power of positive thinking. Christianity is something altogether different. It offers something far greater. It can elevate a man and woman to the mountaintop experience, but at the same time, Christianity speaks to us when we're in the gutter of life. That's why Christianity is so practical. Christianity gives us hope even when we sometimes find ourselves in the gutter. And that's my sermon title. I rarely have a sermon title, Merry Christmas, Late Gift. My sermon title really is Glory in the Gutter because Paul dangles hope to travelers who sometimes find themselves in the gutter of life. This morning we begin a new sermon series in 2 Corinthians. Paul wrote his first letter, 1 Corinthians, to rebuke and correct the church in Corinth. If you've read that book, I read that book often during COVID. It was very, very helpful. It would cheer me up. Read that book. It is a church all about problems, right? I mean, you've got quarreling. You've got division. You've got people suing each other. You had a a man having an inappropriate sexual relationship with his stepmother. You had problems with, like... Spiritual gifts. People were like, oh, you pray for an hour, I pray in Arabic for two. You had all of these problems in 1 Corinthians. And so Paul writes a letter of rebuke, uh, a letter of correction. And so they read that letter, they received that letter, but evidently they did not take that letter well. They rejected Paul's admonition, his correction. They rejected his authority in their lives. And so Paul then visited the church in Corinth in what he called a painful visit. He also wrote to them. And after all these measures, most of the Corinthians saw the error of their ways. And they sought to be reconciled with Paul and be obedient to his words. And so 2 Corinthians, what we're going to look from now when it's cold, 
and we'll finish, Lord willing, in June when it's warm. This is Paul's encouraging letter of reconciliation to this church, encouraging them that all has been forgiven, that they are together once again, and it's an encouraging letter to keep going, encouraging them to have hope that the faith that has begun in Christ in this church in Corinth is a faith that can thrive and survive even in the gutter. So that's the big idea for you this morning. Even in the gutter, you can experience glory. So turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll look at the first 11 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort from which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that, we will, that he will deliver us again. You also must help us in prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. So in this section, usually we kind of structurally go through this kind of maybe verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph, but really Paul links the main idea like a chain. And there's three kind of thematic or theological chains that he links one together with another. Three links in a chain. And so we're going to look at these three links. And the first link that we see is that sometimes we find ourselves living in the gutter. Or at least that's my way of describing what Paul is describing here in first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So in verse 1, in a very Paul-like manner, he addresses, like, this is who I am. I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. And then he gives his traditional grace and peace. But then, starting in verse 3, he does something actually quite abnormal for his other letters. Usually what he does is he, he talks about the reports that he hears about churches he planted, and he says things like, I've heard of the great news, I'm praying and celebrating the, the great grace and growth that I'm seeing and hearing about in your life. Usually he starts with a encouragement, but instead of launching into a prayer or a straightforward encouragement, he kind of gets real serious, doesn't he, in verse 3? Paul explains the reality of the situation. 
It's a sort of reality check. And we know it's a serious reality check just looking at the diction that Paul uses, just looking at his word choice. Paul uses words like affliction, afflicted, suffering, despair. As one author put it, directly or indirectly, suffering is referred to 17 times in five verses. But Paul doesn't just talk about suffering or despair or affliction in the abstract. You ever met those people who just talk about suffering in the abstract and you're like, yeah, you've never suffered. Paul doesn't stay in the abstract. Verse 8, he gets personal and specific and he explains what life is like lived out from his vantage point and his experience. And he says, I want you to know about my suffering. Verse 8. He and his fellow co-workers had been afflicted. And it was so bad, they despaired of life itself. Verse 8. They felt that they had received the sentence of death. Verse 9. It was bad. Now, what, 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 what was this? Was this the time... Paul got shipwrecked? Was this his beatings? Was this his imprisonment? Was this the, the story in Acts where Paul's in Ephesus and the gospel is going forth and the economy is changing because people are not buying idols anymore and so Paul is running for his life? Is, which affliction is this? We have no idea. I mean, we can guess. But we don't know. And I actually think it's really good that we don't know. Because if this was, if Paul said, I'm talking about the affliction when I was shipwrecked, I'm guessing all of us know something about the Titanic. Uh, this past week, my wife went to a Titanic museum in Florida. No idea what that, that is, but evidently there's a museum there. So we know something of what it's like to be shipwrecked. But my guess is, and correct me, find me afterwards if this has actually happened to you, but my guess is none of us have actually been on a boat that sunk, and we're bobbing in the water without seeing shore or any boat wondering, are we going to drown or be rescued? None of us have experienced this. So when Paul talks about just this affliction, but he doesn't name it, it's really easy for us to universalize it and to apply it to any of our afflictions that we have gone through in our lives. Because really the, the important thing isn't what Paul was afflicted with. Really, it's why he was afflicted. And it's clear that Paul isn't talking about suffering in general. This is not talking about arthritis and what it's like to just live life in a broken world. There is a particularity to Paul's suffering that he's talking about. It's the affliction one experiences as being a Christian. And we know that largely because of verse 5. Look there. Paul makes an argument from solidarity. He says, since Christ suffered, so you, in Christ, will suffer also. As many of you know, I'm a lifelong University of Washington football fan. It's been a great, great season. Lord willing, I'm going to be in a good mood on Monday night. But God, in his providence, called my wife and I from Seattle down to Corvallis. 
And so we were like, okay, we got to be all people, to, you know, all, all things to all people. So we got to become Beaver fans. And so the first football game we ever went to, it was Oregon State Beavers versus the University of Washington football team. And I tried, but eventually I looked at my wife and I said, we just got to be who we are. And so we wore our matching Jake Locker University of Washington football jerseys to the game. And we're walking up to our seat and literally a man grabbed me by the shoulder started shaking me and screaming at me and swearing at me as I was just walking up to my seat. Now, why? It's because of my solidarity with the University of Washington that he did that, right? And that's Paul's point here. That's Paul's logic. Your solidarity with Christ means that you will suffer. Now, you might not know a lot about the Christian story. You might not know a lot about the Bible. But I'm guessing all of us know at least a little bit about Jesus. And the little we know is that Jesus suffered a lot. You you really can't divorce Jesus from suffering. He lived a perfect life. Even his siblings and his parents rejected him. He knew all the religious right answers, and yet people hated him for it. He lived a morally pure life. And yet people were furious that he did this. He said some true things about reality. He said some true things about his identity, particularly as God's son, and he got killed for it. Say what you want about Jesus. One thing we can all say about the Christian story is that Jesus was acquainted with grief. He is the suffering Savior. He is the sacrificial lamb. He is the triumphant, crucified Lord. That's who Jesus is. God's son, co-equal in essence, and in his distinct personhood, a man of grave sorrow, because that's what it took to redeem humanity. It's the gospel. Christ dies so that as you put your faith in him, we live. The Christian story, the gospel, is God coming from glory in heaven and coming to the gutter to suffer for our good. And if that's the Christian story, and if that's Christ's story, then if you, in solidarity with him, doesn't it make sense that you'll suffer as well? That's why Paul writes, verse 5, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. As Christ suffered So all those who are in Christ, all those who follow Christ, all those who unite themselves to Christ, all those who follow Christ, all those who put on the team jersey of Christ and display Christ and are obedient to Christ will suffer. Just like when I was at the UW-OSU game, I was wearing the wrong jersey. Display, walk with, tell people about Jesus, and inevitably, like our Savior, you too will suffer. Now, if you don't tell anyone that you're a Christian, you're going to probably be fine. If you never tell, you know, someone at your work that you're praying for them, they'll probably treat you like normal. If you aren't reading your Bible and trying to be obedient to your Bible, you'll probably be fine. But as you begin to follow Christ, Tell others about Christ. Seek to do good in Christ's name. Well, it's clear. Popularity might not be in 
your future. Affliction comes. The Corinthian church was beginning to make peace with that. Paul had already made peace with that. To know Christ is inevitably to know his sufferings. Have we made peace with that? That's the first chink in this chain. The reality check of life lived under the sun, a life of toil and hardship, a life in solidarity to Christ, the God who suffered so much that we suffer as well in his name. But though that is a reality, and though we from time to time live in the gutter, there is a balm that meets us where we're at. That's the second chink in this chain. Paul describes affliction, but he says at that same time, God gives us a balm that meets the reality. Look there at verse 3 and 4, the next link in our chain. There's a word that comes up a lot. When I read it, I'm guessing you heard it. Comfort. In its verb and noun form, it comes up 10 times, I think. I counted. I wasn't a math major. It comes up a lot. Paul writes that whatever affliction you face, whatever trial comes your way, whatever happens in your solidarity to Christ, whatever loss you count because of following Christ becomes a gain. God meets your trial, God meets your pain with comfort. After all, God is the God of all comfort. Which is interesting because in Paul's day, in Greek culture, there's all these gods, right? Some of you know all this because of Percy Jackson. But all these gods, they were fickle. They didn't really care. They didn't care about your hardship and trial. They largely just tried to stay out of the affairs of humans. Not the Christian God. Not this God. He moves towards his people in their pain and meets their affliction with comfort. As verse 5 says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, chink number one, point one, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So it's not just that in solidarity to Christ we suffer. In solidarity with Christ, you also get comfort. Now it's clear what this comfort is. It's not a drug that just numbs the the suffering. It's not like a get out of jail quick card. It's it's nothing of that sort. Verse 6. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when, and here's the key, when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. So whatever this comfort is, it's not a numbing cream to suffering. It's not a loophole to get out of hardship. It's not a magic wand escape. It's a balm of comfort to help us endure. Which I think is really important for us to, to make peace with. Because when, whenever we're in a moment of hardship or trial, whenever we're feeling discomfort, we look for comfort. And I think we do one of two things. We either want to run from God to other comforts, or we want to curse God because we think that's what's going to make us so 
comfortable. If you've heard a, a lot of stories of deconstruction, people who grew up in the church and then rejected it, often goes something like, no, I, I lived a good life, grew up in the church, and then my mom got sick. My mom was such a good person. How could God let that happen? So God and I are no longer on speaking terms. In our trials, we can curse God or run from God. It's how we cope with sorrow. When we're feeling discomfort, we look for comfort. And so we look for it the quickest way we can. Bottom barrel comforts. Sometimes we just want to numb our discomfort with the comfort of just watching television. But Paul says there's a greater comfort that flows from God himself through Christ to all those who are afflicted. Paul writes that as you seek God, as you cling to God, as you pursue God, as you refuse to curse God or run from God, you in your affliction, in your trial, in your hardship will experience the comfort of God. I think it's no wonder why Paul ends this section, which is often described as a prologue, in verse 11 with prayer. Prayer, even when you don't know what to pray about. Prayer, even when you, you just don't even really have the words and it's sort of those ugly prayers, those short prayers, those uh, crying prayers. Prayer is still directed towards God. Prayer is the exact opposite of running from God or cursing God. It's taking our problems. It's taking our pain. It's taking our affliction and hardship and taking it to God himself. It's no wonder that Paul encourages the church to do just that. Whatever affliction was going on in Corinth, Paul says the best thing you can do is to take it and to take it to God. For as you suffer because of Christ, you will be comforted through Christ. But there's one more chink thematically in this section. God comforts us in the gutter and does so not just because he loves us, I don't know if you notice this. He comforts us not just because he loves us or he's obligated to or because he's really, really, really nice and gracious. God comforts us because he wants to use us. Look there again in verse 3. I'll read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction so that, here's the purpose, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Do you realize what this is saying? This really will change your life. God meets our affliction with comfort so that we can comfort others. So before the Lion King was singing about the circle of life, God was talking about the circle of comfort. Comfort doesn't have an end. It might begin with you, but it's not meant to be hoarded by you. It's meant to actually flow through you. When God comforts you in your pain, in your suffering, in your hardship, God wants to use that comfort in other people's lives. And I think this is one of the chief ways God comforts us in our lives. He uses people. He uses relationships. He uses text messages and emails and walks around Broadly Lake 
One of the chief ways in which God comforts us is actually through people. Later, later on in chapter 7 of this book, Paul explains how this works. He, he writes, and you can read this later today, in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 7, Paul writes how comfort works. He says that, that, that uh, the Corinthians were comforted, and then they comforted Titus. Titus then comforted Paul, and Paul comforted the Corinthians. In two verses, he just explains this cyclical nature of comfort. Corinthians comforted Titus when he visited them. Titus then visited Paul and was comforted, comforted Paul. And then Paul, in turn, is now comforting the Corinthians through this letter. This is how comfort works. This is how God so often comforts us, through relationship. He takes our pain and says, I'm going to use it. God uses our bruises, I guess you could say. He takes our comfort, and in the present, he comforts us in the midst of our afflictions and says, in the future, I'm going to use it. God uses the bruises. I thought of so many examples of this that it became overwhelming. And in some ways, I wish we could just like pause and just pass the mic because I know that I, uh, we have testimony after testimony of how this has played itself out in all of your lives as well. But uh, a couple weeks ago, I was talking with someone. They don't go to this church. They were uh, they're in their 70s. Kids are all gone. And uh, they were telling me about a ministry that they do in their church. Uh, they took one of the great pains and hardship, and they turned it into a ministry. Their son, after graduating from college, rejected God, said he was gay, and then married another man. And in the midst of their pain, like, what did we do wrong? They had all these questions and all these concerns, but they realized they needed other people to help them in the midst of them processing this. And so they turned all of that, and in their church right now, they have a support group for parents and individuals who've gone through similar things as they walk with each other and encourage each other along this path. I mean, if you think about it, most ministries are started by taking your hardship, your trial, and your pain, and then trying to think through how you could use that in other people's lives. This month is Sanctity of Human Life Month, and uh, Healing Hearts, uh, a ministry to post-abortive men and women, I'm guessing largely was started and is still staffed with men and women who themselves have felt the pain and the trauma of abortion and are caring for others who have gone through that same experience. This is how it happens. Have you ever gone to a hospital, someone who's suffering in pain, and you walk into the hospital because you want to be a comfort to them, and they turn around and they say, how's your week been? And it's so, you're like, I'm here to comfort you. What are you doing? Evidently, they've been comforted by God and are seeking to use that comfort in our lives. Last spring, I went over to Carol's house to, to visit her a couple days after her husband Ken died to encourage her and talk about the funeral. And I remember I walked into the door she gave me a hug, and the first thing out of her mouth was, Pastor, how are you doing? 
And I remember being frustrated. <laughs> I was there to comfort. And then she told me later on that God had so wonderfully given her peace and comfort that she wanted to encourage her young pastor. And it changed my life. It changed my day. This is what God does. He takes our affliction and our trials. He comforts us so that we can be a comfort to other people. You, you ever had someone just sit with you? Not say a word, just sit with you, hug you, sit in your pain, sit in your hardship, sit in your trauma, just give you a hug, and you're like, how did they know to do that? Well, someone did it for them first, didn't they? God comforts so often through his people. I think this is one of the great apologetics for the Christian church. Yes, there are lots of philosophical things we can do, but non-Christians coming into a church, seeing Christians actually practice this, comforting one another in our grief, in our, our pain, in our cancer, in our you lost your jobs following Jesus, and I think it's only going to get harder. We live that out, and the world's like, I don't know what this is, but I'm not experiencing that out here. God comforts often through his people. A text message. How you doing? A walk, a support group. It's how God sustains us in the gutter of life. And it's why he shares his affliction. Did you notice that Paul says, I don't want you to be unaware. So, so often what we do is we, we kind of become narcissistic with our pain and our suffering. We're like, I don't want to spoil anyone's day, so I'm just going to pretend to, to not, that I'm, everything's going fine. I'm going to walk in here and go, yep, I'm a 10 out of 10. That's not Paul. Paul's like, I don't want you to be unaware of what's going on. Say what you want about 2 Corinthians, but one thing I really hope that you see is that there is this deep, emotional, relational connection in this church with Paul. They knew each other. They knew each other's hardship. They knew what was going on in each other's lives. And he called them to these deep relationships. And that's the importance of the local church and the importance of why we keep on encouraging membership and other things because this is how we practice living out the Christian faith because all of us from time to time wake up one day to that terrifying text message. We wake up to that hard day, we, we wake up and look in the mirror and realize that there's more sadness than joy looking back at us. And we know that we need comfort. We know we're promised comfort. And so often that comfort comes to us by way of others. Verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on the God who raises the dead. Paul describes the comfort he received in his affliction as nothing short of resurrection. You want to experience resurrection, what that feels like? I don't know how you experience resurrection without first going through death. That's how it works. So if you want to experience this comfort, it only comes on the heels of sorrow, suffering, and hardship. Paul experienced glory in the gutter. He was testifying to it, as we all could. The Corinthians were slowly learning of what it looked like to have glory in the gutter. 
I was just encouraging you, and then we're done. At lunch, small group, Bible study, grab someone. Go on a walk and talk about God's comforting grace in your life. Sometime just hearing someone endure hardship is some of the most encouraging grace in our lives. Just hearing how people are sustained by God encourages my walk with Christ as well. So I just encourage you, go do that with one another. Bless one another with the stories of God's comfort in the midst of meeting us in the gutter. Lord, we, uh, we are thankful that you meet us where we're at, not where we always want to be or we wish we were, but you meet us wherever we're at. And as we cry out to you, as we pray to you, you give us hope that you will meet our hardship with comfort. And we pray, Lord, for the men and women and all the stories, all the grace, all the mercy, all the comfort that you have bestowed upon us, we pray that we wouldn't hoard that comfort, but we'd pass it on to one another and walk with one another to celebrate each other's happiness and joy and walk with each other in the gutter of life. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.